Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, please? Finishing off chapter 19 this morning. We'll be in verses 41 through 48. We've just seen Jesus in his triumphal entry. And as he's ascending the hill, the Mount of Olives, and he goes to uh, the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, he's on a, he's on a mule, and there's people laying their, their coats down and, and uh, crying out and praising the Lord. And um, it's a wonderful scene. And now Jesus, as he's drawing near to Jerusalem, we read in verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a, barri- a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because... You did not know the time of your visitation. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus, as we come before your word today, Lord, I ask that we would hang on your words. Lord, that we would be the people who would not just see you, but hear you and respond to you and receive your word with faith and obedience. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see Lord, to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In AD 70, the great general Titus and the Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem and set up siege works against the walls. And stone by stone, the city was completely torn to the ground. The temple was destroyed and the streets ran red with blood from women and children. Caesar wanted to make it impossible for anyone to believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. To that end, Titus tore down everything except for three large towers. He wanted to show how great the city had been and also to prove how superior Rome was. According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, the devastation was so complete that when General Titus saw it, he threw his arms heavenward, uttered a groan, and called God to witness that this was not his doing. And Luke wrote this passage of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote this sometime in the early 60s. 62, maybe 65. And so as Jesus begins to describe what's going to happen to Jerusalem, 
This isn't Luke looking back saying, well, we'll just kind of add this to Jesus' story because this is what happened. He wrote this long before this destruction of Jerusalem ever took place. And so here he is beginning to, to describe peace, Jesus describing piece by piece what was about to happen. And as Jesus drew near to the city, we read this, that he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. Why did Jesus weep over this city? Knowing full well that as he's going into Jerusalem, that this would be the the time of his execution, knowing full well that the people would soon, those who are singing his praises and laying their coats down, would soon turn upon him. Why was he weeping? And I think in Luke 13, we just get a little picture of Jesus' heart again for the people. We read this in Luke 13 and 34 and 35. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I'm sorry, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this we see Jesus' heart breaking for the lost. Jesus' heart breaking for those who are far from him. I think there would be a piece of me as if this was if I was in Jesus' place who would say, you know what, you're going to get what's coming to you for what you're going to do to me. But here Jesus, knowing full well what's about to take place, is weeping. And really the word that the, the writer uses for this is, is, a, is just, a, 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 just a deep, deep sorrow. Just this, this almost like an uncontrollable weeping. It's not just like a, oh, you know, kind of wipe the tears away, go on our way. This is a... He is moved in his spirit. His heart is broken for the lost. He said, if only you would know what makes for peace. Well, the question then is, what makes for peace? What does make for peace? What is it that would make for peace with God between us? It's that Jesus Christ has made a way for us. As Jesus Christ has, has been out in amongst the people and going through the towns, he is describing to them over and over and over again what makes for peace with God. He is going to places and he's preaching the good news. He's telling people about himself, about God. He is performing miracles. He is in the things that he's doing and preaching and teaching and living and loving and drawing people to himself. He's saying, I am presenting to you the way that makes for peace. And it's faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes for peace. And we've just seen in the previous few verses the story of the blind beggar. And he's crying out. He says, Jesus, son of David. It's a response of faith. And then we see shortly after that the story of Zacchaeus. Where Zacchaeus comes down from the tree and there is a work of repentance in his heart. He says, look, I'm going to give it all away. I give away half, and then the other half I'm going to use to give back to everyone I ripped off. There is a response of faith and repentance 
to Jesus Christ that brings peace with Him. And I want everyone here to know this as well, that if we have not responded to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, we need to do this. That is the only way that makes for peace with God. There is no other way. There is no amount of reading our Bibles, attending church, giving to the poor. There's no amount of service or missions trips or anything like that that can make us right with God. There is nothing but Jesus Christ in response of faith and repentance to Him. Turning away from our sins, turning to Jesus Christ and fully trusting in Him alone. That is what makes for peace with God. And as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he fully realizes that what he's asking people to do is to be his disciple or to be his executioner. There's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. He says, you're either following me or you're going to murder me. One of those two things will take place soon. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, We've got to ask ourselves, what were the things that Jesus Christ was most passionate about? Then ask ourselves, are we passionate about those same things? When we see Jesus' life and his love for people and him weeping over the lost, I've got to ask myself, I see Jesus passionate and consumed with this holy passion. As his follower, as his disciple, am I passionate about the exact same things he is? Am I passionate for the lost? Do I weep over the lost as I see Jesus Christ so moved in his spirit that he can't control himself? Do I see that in my own life? If not, then I need God to do a work in me. I need God to begin a work in my own life. Because as I see my own heart, I think, man... Most of the time, I am indifferent towards the lost. I'm apathetic. I'm lazy. There's other things going on in my life. I need God to do a work in me. And I believe it starts with prayer. I believe it simply starts with prayer. Just a simple confession. God, forgive us, for we have not loved and sought and cared for the very people that you so deeply cared about. And God, I need you to change me. I need you to transform me. This is not one of those things where you say, okay, look, we're just going to do more missions trips and I'll fix everything. This is a humble dependence upon God, saying, God, you've got to do something that only you can do. And that's changed my heart. Conform me to your image. That would truly be your disciple. God, I need you to do this in me. And it starts with a simple prayer. Can we just pause right now and just pray? God, we pray. Lord, God, that you would forgive us for our apathy towards those whom you have wept over and those who you have sought after and pursued and loved and embraced. God, forgive us. Lord, give us a heart that loves the way you love that you would break our heart the way that your heart was broken, that you would move us the way that you were moved. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would conform us to your image, 
that we in our desires and in our longing and in our thinking, God, Lord, that we would be transformed to become more like you. Jesus, we need you. God, we need you. Oh, Lord, we've tried and we've failed. Lord, we need you to do a work in us. God, let us as a church, as your people, be transformed in such a way, God, that this kind of passion and love for the lost would be said about us, just like it was said about you. And Lord, we pray this for your glory, not for our glory, not for our renown, but for yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe for us it's going to be a continued walk of prayer. It's not one of those, hey, we just prayed, now we're done, we can move on. I believe this is, God is calling us to love this way is going to require a, a work of God in our lives continually. It's not a one and done. This is God calling us to consider his ways and cry out to him for help. And he is eager to, he's eager to respond to our prayer. This is hard for us. He's not begrudgingly going to change our hearts. He's like, no, this, I'm eager to do this. You're asking good things from me. All right. Now, let's look over to verse 45. Now Jesus moves from the highway to the temple. And as he comes into the temple, he begins to tear the place apart. No longer is it meek and mild Jesus. He is, he is at work tearing the place apart from the top down. He is tearing up, t- up tables. He's, he's beginning to drive people out, physically driving people out of the temple. This isn't one of those, this kind of a nice little child story. This is Jesus in action. Doing something that he does best. Nails the heart of God. So why was he so upset? Why is he in the temple and he's so upset driving people out of the temple? Why is he doing this? Two things. There were money changers in the temple. And every male Jew had to pay an annual temple tax of a half shekel. And at the time, there was five or six different currencies in operation in that area. So you had Egyptian and Greek and, and Roman, and they were all valid, except you had to pay the temple tax in a certain, with a certain coin. It had to be either the, the temple currency or the Galilean currency. And it had to be the half-shekel coin, exact amount, no more, no less. Well... In order for the money changers to give you the exact currency that you needed, they would charge you a commission. And so you'd go to them and say, look, I need the half shekel for the temple tax. And they'd say, no problem. You know, give us what you have and we'll, we'll make an exchange for you. But we're going to charge you a commission on the exchange. Well, if you had a currency that was larger than what you needed, you needed to get change back from the, the exchange people. Well, no problem. What they're going to do is they're not only going to charge you a commission on giving you the proper coin that you needed, they'd also charge you a commission on giving you the, ch- the proper change back. So they got you both ways to the very people who didn't have any money in the first place. 
right? I mean, I think this is where Chase Bank got started. I mean, this is amazing. The modern-day banks have nothing on these guys in the temple. So not only were they ripping people off so they could come and pay their tax, but there was also the sellers of animals for the sacrifices. Now, almost every visit to the temple would include a sacrifice. Animals could be brought, could be bought outside the temple for a reasonable price. However, inside the temple, they had proper temple inspectors because the animals that were sold and then further sacrificed had, had to be without spot or blemish. So you couldn't just offer any animal you liked. It had to be a perfect animal. Well, who decided it was perfect was the temple inspectors. Well, what they would do then is they'd set up the booths inside the temple, and the, they were the official temple booths that would sell the animals that were all inspected properly, and you could make sure that they had the, the in a sense, right credentials to be sacrificed. And you could do that. However, inside the temple, the cost of, let's say, a pair of doves was 10 to 15 times higher than it was outside the temple. And so they would rip people off, just an extreme rip-off. They do this all day long. It was set up to victimize the poor pilgrims as, as they would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. Everything inside the temple was set up to really rip people off. Well, here's a story. Who do you think owned the temple booths? Who was it that had the temple booths? It was owned by the high priest, right? So who was making all the money? The high priest was. He's making a killing on this. He owned the temple booths. He said, who can sell, who cannot sell, where you can be positioned. And him and his family would then rake in all the profits from the sales of all the animals and the exchange of the money. So you can see why Jesus was so upset. And we thought Chicago politics were crooked. And it wasn't that the buying and selling interfered with the worship of God. It was that it was being used to exploit the very people whom were supposed to be helped by the high priest. I want to read a quote for us from a guy by the name of David Gooding. And this is what he writes. Instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by God, they had become middlemen, turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make financial profit out of men's quest for God. Thus, they robbed men. For it is difficult to experience the grace of God and the free gift of His salvation through the services of men bent on making money out of one's spiritual need. They also robbed God by treating His word and sacraments as though they were the stock and trade of their business, and treating God's people not as God's possession to be developed for his enjoyment, but as a market to which they as professionals had the exclusive rights. So as Jesus comes into this temple, he sees all this taking place. And the very people who are there to help others know God are the very ones that are ripping people off to make a profit off of them, so they, can, they themselves can get rich. And Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer. He's quoting out of Isaiah chapter 56. And then he says, But you've made it a den of robbers. 
quoting out of Jeremiah 7. And here it is, his very people. He's making this contrast. Saying, Look, this place is a place of ministry and care, but you have turned this place into a place where you are ripping people off, making a profit off of other people. What you've done is you set up roadblocks for people to come to God. As I read this, I thought, we as God's people, have we been guilty of setting up roadblocks for other people to come to God? Because although the temple doesn't exist in this form, we as God's people are the, the temple of the Lord. We are the very people who are sent to minister God's mercy and grace to those around us. We are those people. We are God's, in a sense, high priest, right? We are a royal priesthood, a holy people sent to be ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are dying and lost around us. And I wonder, as I read this, have I set up any roadblocks for people to come to God? thought a couple different things. So we've got three roadblocks this morning. Roadblock number one. There's times that I care very little about the lost around me. It's a roadblock. I care very, there's times when I care very little about the lost around me. My heart is not broke. My heart is not moved seeing the lost around me. Just yesterday, we took all the kids to a soccer game. Get back from the soccer game. It's about, I don't know, 11 o'clock or so, and everyone's piling out of the, out of the truck, and kids everywhere, and we got to get soccer stuff, and the baby, and, and everything's going on. And this young girl and this lady walk up to me in my driveway, and, and they say, hey, I know you're unpacking your stuff, but we want to give you this, this publication and uh, if you've ever got questions about God or about eternity and those kinds of things, we want to help to answer those for you. And I said, well, in, in a bit of a, this kind of frazzled way, because I'm just trying to get everyone inside, I'm like, oh, I, you know, and I've got to have a conversation with this lady. I'm like, okay, what church are you guys from? Like, oh, we're, we're from the, the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses down the street, and we want to just, you know, welcome you, that kind of thing. And I said, look, I said, um, I appreciate your sincerity. I, I can see that you are sincere in what you're saying and what you believe. Otherwise, you wouldn't be necessarily coming up to me and, and you know, handing me stuff when, when I've got stuff going on. I said, however, I said, your understanding of Jesus Christ is incomplete. You've completely missed who Jesus Christ is. I believe he is the true God. And because of that, we, can ne- we, we will never be on the same page. And so I'm so sorry, but I, I, I don't want your literature. You think, you think too low of Jesus Christ. He is God eternal and our Savior. And I had to go on. And, but I thought, as I thought about that, I thought, here this person is coming up to me to have a spiritual conversation. And I'm like, how often does that happen? Right? And... And here I am, I'm too busy. i got my kids, and for the sake of this girl and for the sake of all my neighbors whose door she's going to go knock on, I should have just said, look, okay, kids, you guys can run and do whatever you want right now. We're going to have a conversation here. Jesus is not 
the archangel Michael. He's, he's got eternal. I mean, there's some, there's some stuff that we could have really had a, a good conversation about. But I was too busy. I didn't care enough for her, this young girl's soul, to really begin to talk about what does, what does the Bible have to say about Jesus Christ. Because what, what you're seeing and what I'm seeing are two totally different things. But I was too busy. I, I, I didn't care for her and my neighbors enough to take the time. And I think that's a roadblock. My own life is a roadblock for people. And so I've got to repent when I see that and say, God, help me. Help me, Lord Jesus. That wouldn't be this way. That would care in such a way that people would be moved by see you for who you are. Roadblock number two. If my relationship with God has little to no effect on my daily life. I was at the water park this past summer. We were in Gatlinburg. The whole family went to a water park and it's a hot, hot day and we're up on this like three-story platform to go down this really cool slide and um, as the day was winding down, there's these mountains in the distance, and there's a sun, the sun's setting behind these mountains, and the sky is just lit up, and it is beautiful. I'm like, and the guy that's like telling us when to go down kind of thing, I'm like, man, you've got the best seat in the house. You can watch this sunset like every single day, and it is glorious. He kind of turns around, and he looks, he's like, oh yeah, it's, I don't even notice that anymore. I mean, just... We're here, you know, do, doing the job and stuff. I'm like, okay, that's, I'm glad you're doing your job. But you missed it. And I think, here he is surrounded by beauty and majesty and glory. And it has little to no effect on him. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even notice it. It's just become commonplace. It's just kind of like, yeah, that's what it is. It's my job. I got a job. It's my nine to five. I'm going to come in, punch the clock, and be out, out of my way. And I thought... Can my relationship with God look like that? There's things that we do as believers. I'll read my Bible and I'll pray and I'll go to church and maybe you know, give a little when the plate gets passed. And there's some things that I do and it just becomes a bit of routine. Like this is what I do. And I miss this, this vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. This, this, this ever-increasing, this dynamic this life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ that I can so often miss. Roadblock number three. A, really, and this kind of feeds into number two, but this sense of like an inauthentic life. We were at a, a Halloween party, and I'll say a Halloween party. And we were at a Halloween party last night, and everyone's got their costumes on, and it's a nice time, and I think, but that is you're at the costume party, right? That's not who you really are, all right? I'm not Jason from Friday the 13th. I'm going to go get some people. But I think sometimes in our own Christian walk, we can become those people with a mask on. And the way in which we present ourselves to our neighbors and the people at church and our friends and family and and other people around us can be a bit of a, of a mask. And it's this inauthentic life. And I think 
that's a stumbling block to people because we know quite well when someone is being inauthentic to us, right? I mean, we're pretty good at, at sniffing out the inauthentic people in our lives, right? The people at work who say one thing to us, but knowing full well that as soon as we turn around, they're going to stab us in the back. I mean, we know those things are going on around us. It's not surprising. And I wonder for us if we've bought into a, at times, a mentality that says, look, we've got to have everything just perfect. Otherwise, no one's going to believe the gospel that I preach. Everything's got to be just right. Man, if there's any weakness in my life, then, then Jesus Christ and his work has been nullified and no one's going to believe a word that I say. And I wonder for us if there was just an opportunity for us to say, look, I'm going to be real. I'm going to be authentic with who I am and what is going on in my life. That even if I'm broken and messed up, that's okay. Because Jesus Christ is at work in my life. I don't have to come and put on a mask or pretend. Not to people at church, not to people at work. Because my life is still a testimony that God is in progress in my life. I haven't arrived. We're all on this journey. Becoming more like Jesus Christ. And as we close this morning... I want to challenge us with that because there's hope for us. See, the one thing with Jerusalem is there was no repentance. There was no turning. Jesus presented them the way that made for peace, but they rejected it. They put Jesus on the cross. For us, we have an opportunity this day, this morning, to turn to Jesus Christ and say, God, here are the roadblocks in my life that you want, to, you want to obliterate, that you want to work out of my life. And there is a new work that you can do in me and through me to the people around me and in my own life and my relationship with you. And so we're going to close. And I want us just to take a moment to respond. Is there a roadblock, the, the caring little for the people around us, the the, our relationship with God not having much of an effect on the rest of our lives, and then the, the inauthentic life, and asking God to, 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 to blast those roadblocks out so that we would be a conduit for God's grace to other people, that we would not slow anything down, that our lives would reflect and model and point back to the work of Jesus Christ through and through and through. Amen? So as we're going to take communion, you guys can begin to pass that out. I want to just pray, and I think quietly for us, can we pray and seek the Lord and ask Him for the grace and the strength to deal with these things in our lives so that we can model and reflect His glory. So Lord Jesus, God, we pray that as as we approach your word, Lord, that we would be the conduits of your grace to other people. God, that not by our inauthentic life or by lack of concern or my relationship with you would not be a stumbling block or roadblock for anybody. God, we pray that you would so do a work in us. God, that we would find a place of repentance in faith, in response to you. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, we need you. God, so we pray that you would help us. 
Help us be conformed to your image. Help us to be changed in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.